All right, well, we are uh, in our second week in our new series in the book of Colossians. Uh, That's how we tend to do things at Sedaris. We preach uh, through books of the Bible uh, because we want to start with the Word of God. We believe He's revealed uh, truth to us. We don't fully understand it, and so we need to come together in community to consider it together that we might have the revelation of God opened up to our eyes, to our spiritual eyes, that we might know who God is and who we are meant to be. So that's what we'll be doing again today. Uh, Today, you will need some coffee, so if you need to get up now and get some extra coffee, I'm literally planning, uh, my mind almost exploded this week, studying this very famous passage, Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Your brains might explode because we're actually going to get insight into the cosmic realities of who Christ is. It's really going to blow us away. So if, if, if you need to get coffee, don't worry. We, we, we don't shy away from big ideas here at Sedaris, and so we're not going to shy away from this one either. But I, I, I promise to not just be big and abstract. I want to start by, by making you laugh. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you a story, one of my favorite stories, a, a story about the Mississippi River. What do you all know about the Mississippi River? Well, I grew up in Seattle, and, you know, back in the day, before the big westward expansion, back in the day, to make it from the east coast all the way west to the Mississippi River, that was a big deal. That was a big deal. And so I kind of, my brain works funny, and I always thought, since I grew up on the west coast, I thought it would be as equally big of a deal for me to go back the other way, east, and see the Mississippi River. And I actually moved to Dallas, Texas, after my getting my master's in accounting from University of Washington. I moved east, and so I was so close. I could smell the Mississippi. It was just one state over, really. It was a big state. Texas is a big state, so <laughs> it was a commitment. And I remember the first time I ever went to Louisiana, I thought I was going to get to see the Mississippi River, and I got really excited, and, and I saw this river, and I ran down to it. turns out it was the Snake River, not the Mississippi, so I had to make another trip to Louisiana. This time I go right to the heart of it, right to Louisiana, and uh, I was there with actually my best friend from high school. Uh, his name was Steve Podmore. He, he was actually in flight training for the Marines in Pensacola, Florida. So I actually flew over the Mississippi River, then drove back from Florida to New Orleans. And uh, New Orleans, am I saying this right, Mark? Okay. New Orleans. Sorry, sorry, sorry. 23 years old, so uh, I wasn't, you know the holy man of God that I am now, (laughs) so I apologize. But we were in New Orleans, French Quarter. You know, we had had a couple of adult beverages. We were 23 years old, and um, we decided to go down to the famous Café du Monde. Have you been to Café du Monde? Have you heard of this? Beignets. Beignets are kind of like donuts. I know I shouldn't say that. They're like donuts without holes, little squares. And you go to Café du Mont, famous cafe right there in the heart of the French Quarter. And we had, this was late at night, and we had, they always come in threes. We each had three, but they're filled with powdered sugar. So by the end of it, we were throwing powdered sugar on each other, and we were covered. 23 years old. Come on, guys. It's many years ago. And, and I said, this is the moment I've been waiting for. I've got to see, finally, the Mississippi. And I just want to see it. I want to, I want to touch it. And so we go, Café du Mont, we walk down. Uh, down this hill, down to, to, to the edge of the water, and there's this little dock, and we walk out on the dock, and, and there it is, the Mississippi. I'd heard so much about it, the fame of the Mississippi, and I don't know what happened next. 
I, I still to this day, I don't know if somebody pushed me <laughs> or I slipped. But next thing I know, I'm not just dipping my toe in the Mississippi. I'm swimming in the Mississippi River, probably about 1 a.m. And in that moment, every part of me was woken up. Because you realize when you're in the Mississippi, it's no longer an idea. And you feel the current, and you realize, next thing you know, you could be taken out to sea. <laughs> Luckily, I was a strong swimmer, strong swimmer. Made it back to the dock and lifted myself up. And uh, realized in that moment, realized in that moment that the Mississippi, the power, the majesty of the Mississippi River was even way more than the stories that I've been told. You see? I don't know why I had misjudged the power and the might of the Mississippi River. It was dark. I was immature. We'd probably had a little bit too much fun the night before. I was distracted by the friends that I was with. But for whatever reason, even though I knew and I'd heard the stories until I encountered truly the reality of the Mississippi River till I was in it. I wasn't woken up. I needed to be sobered up. Whether somebody pushed me or I tripped or I slipped, it doesn't really matter. Now I was awake. Now I was awake to the full reality. And that's what's going to happen to us today. Paul is going to push us or we might just slip into the fullness of who Christ really is. Maybe you've heard stories. Maybe you've grown up hearing stories. Maybe you think you know. Today, Paul's going to say, you don't really know. Christ is so much more than you ever thought. So that's what we're going to look at. I hope that this wakes you up in a really good way, and maybe in a really scary way, because maybe you've been walking in darkness, maybe you are immature, maybe you've been distracted by the pleasures of this world, and you need to be woken up. Let's see if that happens today. So if you've got a copy of the scriptures, turn with me to the book of Colossians. It is a small four-chapter letter written from the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey. We are going to be looking at these famous five verses in, chap in chapter 1, verse 15. If you're new to the Bible, the large, chapter, or the large numbers are the chapter numbers, and the small numbers are the verse numbers. So I'd say chapter 1, verse 15. You look for the big one and then the small 15, and that's where we'll be. Now, as you're turning there, let me just recap from last week what we said. Paul will pray for the church in Colossae. He will pray that they would have their hearts and their minds opened to the one hope, the one hope which they should hope in, which is the hope of heaven. And we talked about how so often... Uh, we tend to think of heaven as, as over here and earth as over here, and there's sort of these two uh, parallel um, but never intersecting realities. And what we said is actually when we understand what the Bible teaches, and I get to do my, my power stancing again, is that heaven is everything, everything. It is the realm of God. 
who created everything. So heaven is everything. And then there's this little rebellious subsection of it, which is creation, which God in heaven past decided, I'm going to create material reality. We call it earth, and the Bible calls it earth. It's all of the universe, the cosmos, the stars in the sky, the earth, the animals, all of it. He creates it, but it is not sort of separate from heaven, though there are distinctions because of sin. God's presence is not fully in earth as it once was and once will be, but heaven is still all, and earth is like this tumor we talked about that has gone wrong, and Christ as we'll see, wants to come and redeem it all and bring heaven and earth back together. And so Paul prays this over the people in Colossae, and in verse 9, he prays this as well. And this is sort of our prayer for this morning. And so, from from the day we heard, heard of your faith and your love and the hope that you have in heaven, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and you could add spiritual spiritual understanding why so as to walk in a manner worthy of the lord fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge that is the relational personal knowledge of god so that's sort of the hope of the whole reason Paul's writing this letter to, to a church that he, didn't ha- that he himself didn't start, but that good friends of him started. Actually, one of his disciples went to start this church, and he's writing them to encourage them because they have uh, division and quarreling amongst them. They're worshiping things that they need not worship because they've missed something, something really, really important about who God is and who Jesus is. And so that is really the first thing Paul will do, that we might gain spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. He needs to help us see Jesus as he fully is. Paul will say, if, if you want to walk in a, in a way worthy of the Lord, worthy of who you are and who you are being made, you need to see Jesus Christ fully. And that's what we have in verses 15 to 20. And what is so amazing about 15 to 20 is most likely Paul has taken an original hymn, something he didn't write, and he's probably massaged it just a little bit to fit the context, uh, but he's taken a hymn that the church would say or sing about Jesus, and he's put it right in here. Why is this so amazing? They call it the Christ hymn. What's so amazing about this is that it shows that people were saying these things about Jesus long before Paul wrote his letters, and long before the second or third century, which many critics of Christianity say, oh, that's when they started calling Jesus the Son of God. This sort of proves that, no, they were singing about Jesus as this cosmic reality that we're about to read about long before, just within 10 to 15 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, this had become a known Christian hymn throughout the world, that Paul can quote it and people would recognize, oh yeah, I've sung that, I know that. Isn't that that amazing? So if people say to you, well, you know, this whole Jesus as God thing was a later invention of the church to kind of keep people going, not true. Here we have proof, right here, that these were the things they were saying right after his death and his resurrection, so much so that they wrote a song about it (laughs) that was circulated amongst 
all the churches in the Mediterranean world. Crazy, exciting. And what will this hymn tell us? It will help us to see who Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is. Because here's the problem. Earth knows Jesus as something. Heaven knows Jesus as something. But what should we know Jesus as? So I I put together this little chart for you. Throw it up there. Earth knows him as Jesus. Okay? Sorry if that's a little bit hard to read. He is, I'm going to put my glasses on. (laughs) Okay. Earth knows him as Jesus. Here's a man. Born in 3 to 5 B.C., we got some of the dating wrong many years later, which is why Jesus isn't actually born at year zero. Born 3 to 5 B.C., son of Mary and Joseph, brother to James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, and, he, and, and most likely had sisters as well. He lived the majority of his life in Nazareth, which is in the region of Galilee in Israel. He was a carpenter by trade. He had a short ministry as an itinerant rabbinic teacher, traveling around teaching people about the scriptures. He had a short ministry of healing sick, diseased, lame people. He had a short ministry as a miracle worker. And he was, earthly speaking, a beloved religious ethicist. He was a moral teacher. What else does the earth know about him? He was convicted and executed as a blasphemer, as one who claimed to be God, who claimed to be the Messiah who claimed to be the Christ. So earth knows him just as Jesus of Nazareth. So so that earth knows him. Now, if he is the Son of God, that means heaven knows him as something. What does heaven know him as? Heaven knows him as the Son, the beloved Son. We saw that last week. Which is what? That he is God of God. He is the second member of the Trinity. He is eternally, he has eternally existed. He is not made, he is not born, he was not created. He is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, life itself, love itself. He is the King of heaven. That's how he's known in, in heaven, in heaven. On earth, he's known as Jesus of Nazareth. How are we to know him? How is the church to know him? That's where the Christness of Christ comes in. The church knows him as the Christ. The Christ. And what does it mean that he is the Christ? That's what we'll look at today. It's going to mean these eight things. Um, If you take notes, here's my suggestion. You're not going to have enough room for the things we're going to go. We're going to talk about eight characteristics, aspects of that he is the Christ. My recommendation is write these down right now and then just listen. And you can always go back online and and take more notes and listen. But if you try to take all the notes, you'll run out of space and you'll be angry that we haven't given you more note sheets, okay? So write these down. These are are the eight things. We'll walk through them one by one. The church knows him as the Christ, which is he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of creation. He is the means of creation. He is the glue of creation. He is the head of the body, which is the church. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. 
He is the dwelling place of God's fullness. He is the peacemaker, king of heaven and earth. Like I said, it's big. It's so big. So let's read this passage, and I'm going to show you why this middle category, I think so often we've, we've forgotten to talk about the Christness of Christ, which is what we're calling our series in Colossians, restoring the Christness of Christ. Christ is not just a surname. It's not Jesus' last name. It's so much bigger than that. And this, this middle category is so important. Let's read the text, and then I'll, I'll, I'll explain something. Okay, verse 15. He, that is the Son, and it picks up the Son from, from the verse just before it. He, the Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. The Christ hymn. The Christ hymn. Fantastic. I want to point something out to you. I want to show you that this Christness, this middle category, is really the way that Christ translates heaven to earth and earth to heaven. Now, there's something in the text. I don't know if you, if you saw it or picked up. Probably not. But, but actually, in the way the hymn is written, it is pointing to this. It is like two sides pointing in together so that they might be connected by Christ. So look at this. In the first half of the verse or of the hymn, in verse 16, look at what it says. Look at, look at the order. It says, all things were created in heaven and on earth, right? Starting with heaven, moving towards earth. Now look at the back end of the hymn, and look what it says. He's reconciling to himself all things, whether on, you'd expect that they're following the pattern, and to say heaven or earth. No, it says it the other way. Whether earth or in heaven. Intentional or not intentional? Intentional. Here's what it's saying. Jesus the Christ, the Christness of Christ, is that which translates heaven to earth or earth to heaven. Christ goes both ways. He translates for either. So if you've only known him as Jesus the carpenter from Nazareth, he will translate for you who the Son is. If you've only known him as the Son in heaven, he will translate for you who Jesus is. That is the Christness of Jesus. He is the linchpin. He is the Velcro. He is the translator. He is the great converter. He is the missing link that brings heaven and earth together again. That is the Christness of Christ, and that is what we'll see in the Christ hymn. And it's beautiful. There is Christness of Jesus, and there is Christness of the Son. 
And in Jesus Christ, heaven and earth reunite. Big stuff. Okay? So let's walk through these one by one, the eight aspects of Christness. Number one, the Christ is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. We saw that right there in verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God. What does this mean? Well, there's, there's more than one place in Scripture where this is talked about. Uh, throw up here, Nate, Hebrews 1.3 for me. Hebrews 1.3 says this, He, that is Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We'll see that here in a second as well. Making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, so here's what the image means. It means that Jesus Christ is the radiance of God himself. So you can think about it like this. When I look up at the sun, am I seeing the sun itself? Not. I'm sorry, I just looked at this light as if it were the sun, and I'm blinded now. <laughs> Don't look directly at the sun, kids. Okay. No, you're not seeing actually the sun. What, you'll, what you're seeing is the radiation from the sun. You see that? It's actually one way historically we've, we've come to think about how this triune God works, Father, Son, and Spirit. Father is the actual gas orb. Sun is the radiant rays of the sun. And the, that warmth you feel is the presence of the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit. So you see, it's not that he's not God, it's that, but that he has a unique part in being the image, the radiance of the invisible God, the God that we cannot see, apart from Christ's translation of God to our visible senses, okay? That is that he is the image of of the invisible God. Now, this is not a new word. If, if you're a student of Scripture, you realize right at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, God creates all things, and then he creates male and female, and he says he creates them in his image. That human beings are uniquely capable themselves of image-bearing God. So in creation, human beings were given this unique task of being the representatives, having dominion, and bearing the image of God. So what does this mean about Jesus Christ when he puts on flesh? Well, he is putting on that which has already been created to, in part, display the image of God. The difference, though, is that Jesus, unlike Adam and Eve, the first humans who are given this task, Jesus is both God in the flesh, so he's even a greater image, and he doesn't mar that image by sin. Jesus lives the perfect Life. So you could say Jesus is the perfect human material representation of what God is like. So if anybody ever says to you or you think this in your head, well, I wonder what God is like, or I wonder what God would be like if he were a human, you say, you don't have to wonder that anymore. We know exactly what he would be like. He would be Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. God has translated himself into a language that we can see and hear and understand. It's beautiful. So this is the Christness. Now, here's what's interesting. Here's what's interesting. 
This is not, in Jesus, the first time that the invisible God has translated himself into visible image. Okay? This is not the first time. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see other occasions in which it appears that the pre-incarnate Christ, because the Son, the Christ, existed before creation, and even before he became Jesus of Nazareth, we have examples of God appearing to humanity, okay? Probably the greatest example, the example many of us know about, is Moses. Moses is the great uh, redeemer, savior figure of the Old Testament who takes the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and God calls him to that task, to that role as leader of this community in the Exodus. He calls him by appearing to him in the burning bush. Have you heard about this bush? The burning bush. And in the text, what it says is that God appeared, or it doesn't say, it says first, it says, an angel of the Lord, an angel of Yahweh, appeared to Moses in a burning bush. Then, then just a few verses later, it says, then God said to him, so what we have here is we have the angel of the Lord and God equivocated. What's going on? Was it an angel or was it God? The answer is, It was the pre-incarnate Christ. It was the pre-Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Because Christ is always that which translates to our senses who God, the invisible God, is. We have a great example of that right there in the burning bush. And often that title, the angel of the Lord, is a way to say this is the Christ coming to make, uh, translate God into a form that we can speak to and see directly. It's not often in the Old Testament, but we see it at several points. Because the Christ is a category bigger than just Jesus. At a moment, Jesus will come into his, or Christ will come into history in the person of Jesus, but he was always there. He has always been there. We'll see that as we go through this hymn. Now, so interesting in the story of the burning bush, which is such a fantastic a realization that I had this week, is uh, Moses, if you just read through it, Moses is, the first thing he's very confused about is not that this bush is speaking. <laughs> the very first thing that he's confused about is, it's on fire. How come the fire is not consuming the bush? That's the first thing he gets so, he's like, why isn't the bush burning up? What, what's going on here? I think this actually helps us to see the beauty of the Christness of God. Because when Christ comes, he takes something which ultimately would have created death, fire, and destruction, and he, he, he transforms it. He redeems it. No longer does fire consume to the point of death and destruction, but fire can be there without consuming. What is going on? There's right there in that moment, you see how when Christ comes, he redeems creation, and it's something different and new. Now we have the power and the warmth and the wonder of fire without the destruction. Pretty cool, right? That's the Christness of Christ. He takes the power of God and puts it into a form that we can understand without it killing us. So cool. So you hear, here's point one. The Christness of God the Son, how they know him in heaven, has always manifested or translated the invisibility of God to be visible and understandable to creation. But in Jesus something unique happened. That is, Christ wed himself to an image once and for all in Jesus of Nazareth. 
in the incarnation, when the Spirit of God came upon Mary and, and God was enfleshed, in that moment, God said, from now on, the Son and the Christ, the image that that will be, will always be, for, from now until, until everlasting, Jesus. Jesus. And in the new heavens and the new earth, guess who will be there? Jesus, the Christ, the carpenter, who is the Christ, the Son, who is the Christ, who is the carpenter. You see how it is forevermore brought together heaven and earth, okay? So that's point number one. Not all the points will take that long. You always got to start big on the first point. <laughs> that's the first aspect. He is the image of the invisible God. Aspect number two, he is the firstborn of all creation. See it again with me in verse 15. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now, you might look at this and be like, wait, 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 you just told me that, that the Christ was eternally existent. But here it says he's the firstborn of creation. Well, that's okay. A lot of people would read this and mistaken, but this is not what it's saying. It's not saying he was the first to be born. What it is is a title. In your families, there's a firstborn, right? And something's different with the firstborn. And especially in ancient times, the fir being the firstborn, being the firstborn meant a lot. It meant you got the inheritance. It meant everything that's dad's and everything that's mom's is yours because you're the firstborn. So that's what he's referring to here. A little bit confusing for us in our modern day because we don't quite think of the firstborn in that way. But that's what he's saying. He is the firstborn, which means it's all his. It's all his. Jump down with me to verse 16. The end of verse 16, it says this. All things were created through him and, look at this, for him. So all of creation was created for the firstborn, which is Jesus, which is the Christ, who is the Son. You see that? It all goes to Jesus in the end. It's all the Christ's in the end. He owns it even though he patiently waits to take that which is already his rightful possession. That's how inheritance works. You've got to wait until the time is right. And he's waiting, but it's already his. It's all, the, the documents are already signed. It's his. He's the firstborn. Now, why is it? Why does Jesus, the Christ, get to be the firstborn? Why, did, why, why does he have the inheritance, you ask? Well, that brings us to... To, to the third aspect, the Christ is the means of creation. He is the means of creation. Look at verse 16. It says this, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through, see, see, see the verb of means, through him, and for him. And you see this at other points in Scripture. There are these three aspects of what creation is and how they relate to Christ. There is actually the, 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 little, um, the little word by there could be translated in. So creation is in Christ, meaning it's all within his sphere. Through Christ, which is the instrumentality of creation, the means of creation. And for him, that is what we just talked about, the goal of creation. Simply to say, there is no creation without Christ. Every single part of creation is meant for 
the goal, the sphere, or the instrumentality of Christ. That is, that is the hugeness of what this is saying. This is hard to understand. What is this instrumentality of Christ? How is it that all of creation was made by him or through him? I thought of an illustration that might be helpful. Um, say, say you hold a book. This is a, just pretend this, it's just a regular book. Because we all know who this book was written by. I mean, this book works as well, but I don't want to, you know, use it as a cheap illustration. But think of a book. You say, like, who made that book? Who made that book? It's an interesting question. Who made it? I, I could look here and I could look at, well, let's see. Who made it? Who is the publishing company who actually printed it? You know, who owns the ink? I was like, I don't know who made that book. Who, who wrote it? Who's the author? You see? One way you could think about it is a book has an author. You think of that as the Father, God the Father. Then there is a publishing company. There is a printing press someone that takes that which is in the mind of God the Father and it's the instrument through which the ink, maybe that's the Holy Spirit, the ink gets translated into a form that we can now read. Who made this book? Well, all three, the author, the printing press, and the ink that's on the page. They all made it. But it is uniquely Christ who is the instrument by which we now have access. Before Christ, we did not have the ability to take the words of the book and put them on the page. Praise be to God that Christ is the instrument through which all things were created. There can be no creation without Christ. That is his part in the whole project. So what did he create? What did the Son create? What is, you could say, the book of creation? Paul tells us right here, he created visible things and he created invisible things. What? <laughs> visible things, I get that, Trees, birds, lakes, rivers, mountains. He created that. Visible things and invisible things. What was he talking about? Well, Paul gives us a little insight here in the next part of verse 16. He says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. This is Paul saying what the invisible things that God, through Christ, created. And what are those invisible things? He's talking about spiritual beings. Spiritual beings. Yes, they exist. Yes, they are invisible. And that's all the time I have today to tell you about them. We'll come back to these spiritual beings. Paul will give them four categories. Thrones, powers, rulers, and authorities. And I think here he's talking about both good and bad. Spiritual beings. They exist. They were created through Christ. You need to know that they exist. It's, it's like playing a brand new board game with some friends that, 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 I love this board game. Come play this board game with me. This happens to me. I'm going to get really passionate. It happens to me. Oh, okay, okay. Teach me the rules. And they teach me a few of the rules. <laughs> and then we start playing. And then they pull some move on me. And, and, and they say, oh, I'm going to go ahead and use my special card for this. I was like, what special card are you talking about? 
You did not tell me the rules of the game. That's what it's like if we don't know that there are spiritual beings that exist in God's creation. It's, it's, it's not fair. We're, we're playing a game, but we don't even know all the rules. So just know at this point, we'll come back to this later in Colossians, they exist. Paul says they were created through Christ. Why is that so important to Paul? Why does he stop? This is probably where he added to the hymn. Not a lot of great hymns sort of lay out thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. He stopped. He said, I just need you to know this. God created them. They are not sort of existent on their own. They're not like, you know, cousins of Christ. Christ created them. Some have remained faithful to, to the mission of God. Some have rebelled. But you need to know that Christ created them. Why? So that you know that Christ has authority over them. Do not be afraid. He is above them. One, stop worshiping them as if they're equal to Christ. Two, don't be afraid of them as though Christ does not have authority. So that's the third aspect. Fourth aspect is this. Christ is the glue of all creation. Look at verse 17. It says this, And he is before all things. That is, again, Paul reminding us, he was not created He was before creation itself, and in him all things hold together. Feel that Velcro? All things hold together by Christ. What things? All things that he has created. All of heaven, all of earth are held together by Christ. He holds it together. God didn't just write the code for creation and then let it spin out on its own while he went on vacation. This is not how it works. He is literally holding it all together by the word of his power. And who is doing that? Christ is doing that. Before the coming into flesh and the person of Jesus, Christ was holding all of creation together. After his death and resurrection and ascension to sit at the right hand of majesty like we just read, guess what Christ is doing? He's holding it all together. Uh, I thought of the internet again. Last week we talked about the internet. talked about the internet again this week. I just love the internet, don't we all? Guess what? I have no idea how the internet works. <laughs> I just know that it works. Right? In fact... I wanted to say something about the internet, but I I know so little about how it works, I called my good friend Joseph Cox, who works for Google, and I said, Joseph, tell me how the internet works. (laughs) Now here's the great news. Joseph actually just got back from a trip to Hawaii because his team at Google won an award. So Joseph is one of the smartest guys I know, and he works for Google. Joseph said to me, I don't really know (laughs) how the internet works. I just know how to use it. That was, so, that was so good for me. And then he said something pretty profound. He said, you know what? It's actually quite interesting that the internet hasn't fallen apart yet. But guess what? The internet itself is not just this thing that exists and runs on its own. It can actually fall apart. There's some things called DNS servers. There's, okay, that's as far as I'll go with what Joseph told me. But the reality is there is a way to break the internet. It can be broken. I made sure on our phone call to just say out loud, I'm, I'm talking about breaking the internet. 
for the purposes of a sermon illustration in case anybody's listening, okay? <laughs> I did say that. That's a true story. You can ask Joseph. But the reality is somebody somewhere is holding the internet together. Nobody's quite sure who, but somebody is. That's what's going on with all creation. It's not just there. Christ is holding it together. Douglas Moo, uh, theologian, commentator, said this, What holds the universe together is not an idea or a virtue, or I'll add a code or algorithm, but, Douglas Moo says, a person, the resurrected Christ. Without him, electrons would not continue to circle nuclei. Gravity would cease to work. Planets would not stay in their orbits if Christ wasn't holding it together. You see the, the cosmic reality of this, of, of this hymn? Christ is so much bigger than how we tend to think about him as our buddy, our pal, a shoulder to cry on. He's literally holding it all together. Okay, real quick, stand up, stand up. We're halfway through our eight. Stand up. We're going to do a... Uh, a heavenly uh, power squat. We're just going to go like this. Heaven is everywhere. <laughs> Earth is here. Okay, go ahead and sit back down. <sighs> Gain some points there. I'm going to fly through these last four, okay? Verse 18 says this. For in him, sorry, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of the body, the church. This community, every church, Christians universally, saints that have gone home to be with the Lord, those that are still here, those that will come in the future, we are held together by our leader, our head, who is Christ. This is how we are connected. So if we do not know Christ or have Christ, we cannot be connected in the ways that we are to be. We are the body. He is the head. And this fifth distinction is quite profound when you look at its place in the overall hymn, right? We've just got halfway through, and the turning point from heaven to earth, now we're going to start looking at from earth back to heaven. What is the connecting point? Obviously, it's Christ, but how does he begin to work out this reconnection process? The answer is through the church, not an accident that it's right here at the middle of these two, you see how they're coming together, and in the church, it all begins to flip around as he reconnects heaven and earth, and he does it by being the head of his heavenly community that lives on earth, which is the church. If you don't know what the name Sedaris means, read it. Maybe it'll make more sense now. We are both an earthly and a heavenly community, a heavenly body meeting on earth. We are the hinge for what Christ is doing, starting from original creation, now recreating, centered on the church. Number six. The Christ is, look at this, look at this, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the firstborn from the dead. Clearly speaking here about his resurrection, his what? bodily resurrection from the dead. A scripture also call him the first fruits of bodily resurrection, the first fruits of material resurrection, the first fruits of creation being renewed again. Why is this such good news? We don't scrap the whole experiment, God says. We remake it, and it starts with Christ. 
He is the firstborn. He is the firstfruits. But everything that has been broken, even our bodies, will be in Christ, recreated, remade. Material creation does not go away. It exists. And we know this because Christ is the firstfruits. He didn't scrap his earthly body. It was renewed. Isn't that beautiful? Number seven. The Christ is the dwelling place of the fullness of God. Look at verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Was pleased to dwell. This is, this is beautiful. Jump over to 2.9 because he'll say something very similar. In 2.9 he says, For in him, that's the Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Isn't that fantastic? God is actually pleased, this is such an important word, pleased to dwell bodily, materially. Here, here's, see, you hear the pleased language? It shows that God is, is he's happy that the divine spirit and materiality coexist. Spirit and physical creation or substance are not contradictory as many world religions. And even at the time Paul was writing this, people were debating whether or not we really want a bodily resurrection. That's all. Just think about world religions. In Christianity, we say no, spirit and physicality coexist. We dwell together. And in Christ Jesus, only because of Christ, do we not have some sort of imbalance between spirit and material. In Christ, they are equal. And they are, get this, eternal. So heaven is a physical, eternal reality. God is pleased that the, the fullness of him dwells in bodily form. Pretty cool stuff. And finally, number eight, he is the peacemaker. Look at this. Verse 20. And through him, that is Jesus Christ the Son, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Making peace by the blood of the cross. Why is this so important? The one who created it all, through him it was created, all things, visible and invisible, it is through him that they can all be reconciled. He's the only one with the resume to make it happen. You say, I don't know, what if he doesn't come through in the end? Well, he built it, he can rebuild it. That's why we have great confidence and hope in the agent of reconciliation and remaking, that is Christ the agent of peace. By what means does it say? It says by the means of the blood of his cross. Beautiful. It's by the blood of Jesus that he begins to remake that which he made in the beginning. He remakes it by his blood. So thinking back to our tumor analogy, if earth is like this tumor of God's good creation, how do you begin to infuse good cells into the disease cells that those, those disease cells might not need to be scrapped but can be remade. Well, you need to transfuse blood into the bad cells. And how does that happen? The Christ, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And by his blood, we celebrate that every week. Not, not, not his physical blood. His, this is a spiritual reality that we see manifest through the symbol of the body and the blood of Christ, by his spiritual blood, all affected creation and all affected spiritual reality and beings can be restored by the blood 
of Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. Those are the eight aspects of the blood of Christ, or sorry, of the Christness of Christ. And if you haven't quite seen it yet, eight times Paul says all, all, that's the Greek word pause, all, every, each, eight times in these few verses he says, you think Paul's trying to tell you something? Christ is all in all. In case you don't see it clearly, let me grab your hand. Let me push you into the Mississippi River to wake you up. Paul says, Jesus Christ our Lord is all in 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 all. Anyone tells you you need something and Christ is lying. He is all in all. Do you see it? That's the main problem in Colossians, in the, in the church there. They, they are trying to add things to Christ. He's saying, no, Christ is over all, in all, through all, by him and him alone, all things exist and are being remade by his blood alone. He is all you'll ever need. He is all you could ever want. He is all in all. Heaven and earth can be found in him and in him alone. So what should you do if you aren't yet woken up by the Christ hymn? The centrality, the enormity, the otherness of Christ Jesus our Lord? Well, Stop worshiping anything else. Because if you're seeing it clearly, how could you possibly worship anything else if this is who Christ is? So you stop worshiping whatever you're worshiping that's clearly not to the level of Christ, and you start worshiping Christ. You get as near to him as possible because, what does it say in verse 20? He's reconciling all things to himself. So the closer you are to Christ, the closer you are to the reconciledness of creation. It's only near him that you'll find relationships the way they're supposed to be, the world the way it's supposed to be, because he's reconciling it to himself. So you can't stay far from him and get the good stuff of new creation. You want to know where the best wine is? Go to the weddings where Jesus is. He takes the old and makes it new. We literally have a story of him doing that, his very first miracle. New creation always is near Christ. Friends, what are we called to be like? Who are we called to be like? To be like Jesus? Yeah. To be like the Son? Eh. We are called to be like Christ. Why is this so profound? Sometimes we aim too small, and we just try to be like earthly Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. We want to be good guys, moral people, teachers of helpful religious practices and truths, even humble, sacrificial friends. Yes, that's a good start, but we are commanded to be so much more, just as Jesus was so much more than just Jesus. We are called to be like Christ which is to be representatives, image bearers of the invisible God. We are called to be hopers in the inheritance of the firstborn. And since all creation is his, we should steward his creation. We are to be heavenly hopers, like we talked about last week. We are to be creators of new life. That's what the Christ does. We are workers of divine creativity. We are standers in the gap. We are mediators between heaven and earth. We are glue people. That's what I'm trying to say. Have you ever had friends tell you that? Well, how, how are you friends with that group and that group? How do you get along with those people at work and those people at work? 
What they're saying is, you're like a glue person, and you should say, praise be to Christ. He taught me how to do that, to stand in each realm and hold it together. That's what it means. That's what you're called to be. Like Christ, be glue people. You are called to be advocates for the dead and the dying, both physically and spiritually. Dead and dying people need what? The Christ. And you get to be that. Bringers, restorers of new life. That's what it means to be like Christ. We are people of spirit and substance. Spirit and substance. Anybody ever said to you, you seem to have God with you. I hope all of us have that experience where somebody says, God seems to be with you. We're people of God, spirit and substance, that, the, that God wants to dwell within us, just like he did fully with Christ. Spirit and substance. Reconcilers, peacemakers in both spiritual and physical realms. And then I'll, I'll say this, related to that. If we are to be like Christ, and Christ had authority over spiritual beings, we too should seek and know if we have Christ with us, we have authority even over the spiritual realm. But you have to believe it exists, and you have to know that Christ created it, and if you have Christ, you have authority over it. 1 Corinthians 6.3 tells us, we will judge angels. That's you and me. What? Because God gives us in Christ authority over everything that Christ has created. Invisible, invisible. Amen? Let's be like Christ. Let's pray. Father, we, we are in awe. That's, that's the only thing that we can do when we hear the Christ hymn. When we see through the eyes of Scripture, which you have revealed to us through the Apostle Paul by the Spirit, when we see that, we are in awe. And God, I pray that it wakes us up, that we would be woken up to the reality of this Christ that we come week in and week out to worship. May we see Christ for who he really is, and may it humble us, And may it empower us because you've said you've given us the spirit of Christ that we might go and be reconcilers in this world, that we might bring new life, that we might have authority over even the spiritual realm in the name of Jesus Christ. I pray that right now. In the name of Jesus Christ, if there are any spiritual beings in this room, in the name of Jesus Christ, we cast them out of this place. This is a community of Christ, the house of God. Get out of this place. In Jesus' name, in the name of Christ our Lord, we have authority over every part of creation, invisible and visible. May we know that and walk in that and walk in a manner worthy of our calling to be like Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.